UFO Radio. I am your host, Alejandro Rojas, and I am here with my good buddy, Mr. Jason McClellan. Hello, Jason. Hello, Alejandro Rojas. How you doing? You know, I'm doing fantastic so far. It's Monday, and I don't like Mondays, but, uh, you know, all things considered, I'm fantastic. Excellent, excellent. So, yeah, so we have a good show today. We have David Paris, and um, he is a university professor he teaches in a lot of stuff not just that he's a physicist but uh, he also teaches like at different universities university of nebraska um at uh, a few other schools but he teaches he teaches physics meteorology physical sciences astronomy physical geography um, physical geology and statistics at uh, different universities and colleges around uh, the Nebraska area. Uh, he also has done a lot of weather work, like weather observer for the Air Force and stuff like this. So he's definitely a very learned scientist. And That's a lot of stuff. Yeah, it's a lot of stuff. He's a super busy guy. And you know what's not on here, actually, is he does a couple paranormal groups at uh the University of Nebraska in Omaha. So they like go ghost hunting, you know, and I think they even have their own on-campus MUFON there that he's a part of. So he's a super, super busy guy. And in on top of all of this, he's got this lab in his garage where he's doing lots of crazy stuff, including, and the reason he got a hold of us to, to be on the show today, is he believes he was able to create a micro-warp. So in other words, that physicist Eric David was, was talking about uh, space warp and kind of Star Trek technology and being able to make these, um, you know, go warp speed to places very quickly. He believes that he was able to do this on a very, very, very minute scale, um, proving that it's possible and that his very small micro warp, like he calls it, is scalable. So without the energy um, that many people think, they call it exotic energy, but this incredible amount of energy needed supposedly to keep, create these um, these time warps or these space warp tunnels, uh, he thinks that it takes a less, lot less. So he's going to talk to us about that science and about uh, his work there. And it's pretty exciting stuff. So we'll be talking to, to Mr. Paris in just a little bit here. Kind of cool. What if we're on the brink of actually having, being able to do this, Jason? Oh, we are. I mean, it's it's definitely coming. There's so many projects underway and research being done by NASA and other organizations and individuals. Um, yeah, warp technology is definitely coming soon. Well, and SETI keeps denying that it's even possible or, or you know, oh, you can't do that. That's why they're never going to be here and we're never going to be there. Oh, those silly guys. 
No, uh, warp, silly warp, warp technology. No, it's it's in my opinion, it's definitely going to be a reality um, in the near future. But you know, that's just one technology. There, there's so many other breakthroughs in technology, just different approaches to space travel that I believe are coming soon. And uh, you know, I think our travel capabilities are going to be blown wide open. It's very exciting, Alejandro. Very it's exciting. Freaking exciting as hell. Yes. yes. All right, so let's get to the news and talk a little bit about uh, some of the stories. We each usually go over a story, and uh, lots of good ones, I think, this week. Every week, there's at least a couple of good ones. So what story have you chosen? Yeah, you're right. There definitely were some great stories last week. Uh, but I'll go ahead and talk about the story. Some of you might be uh, familiar, especially our friends in the UK might be familiar with uh, this BBC astronomy show called Stargazing Live. It's hosted by Professor Brian Cox among others. Well, let's show Stargazing Live. Um, an assistant producer on that show, his name is Keaton Stone, posted a message to his Twitter account on Friday saying that he saw a UFO over the town of Hednesford in uh, Staffordshire, England. And he simply posted, okay, I know this sounds crazy and I'm supposed to discount this kind of stuff, but I swear I have just seen a UFO over Canuck, Hednesford. So this guy, a skeptical guy, saw something crazy in the sky that uh, he he wasn't the only one to see it. He, a friend was with him, too, when he saw it. And he described it, it's an interesting uh, description here. He said it was turquoise and then white and flying all over the place. So he described very strange movements with this object he saw, just darting in different directions. Um, his initial thought was that it was ball lightning, He'd never seen ball lightning, so he tried to look on the internet to see some videos or any sort of imagery of, of what ball lightning would look like. But uh, he's pretty convinced uh, that's not what he saw. So he uh, started posting and reaching out to people to see if anybody else had seen it, but no one else did. So he's completely fascinated by what he saw and can't explain it. I love when this happens, when you have people, especially someone like this, uh, working on a astronomy show. With somebody like Professor Brian Cox, you know they're they're very skeptically minded and scientific when it comes to things in the sky, but uh, he saw something that has him boggled. Yeah, pretty cool. And what's inter what I like about this too is that you know um, we hear from a lot of people, of course, that see something similar, a light that's zigzagging around the sky, and you know it, 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 in an unexplainable way, and. Um, you know, for the person who witnesses that, it's like, what the hell could that be? There's nothing that could have been. And so it is. And I know, I don't know, not being, you know, a, that as skeptic, I mean, I'm skeptic, but not as much as them. I mean, I'm willing right. to say, okay, this guy saw something strange. What was that? So I'm open to the idea that, wow, they saw something genuinely um, unexplainable. And I always wonder, these people who are really, really hardcore skeptics, how do you explain that away? You think that person was just you know, misinterpreting what they saw or they didn't see what they see. So I love when these skeptics see that because it's like, look, that's what these people are talking about. They're seeing this sort of thing. They don't know what it is. That's why this field is worthy of research. So it is really cool. It's exciting when people see stuff like that. Especially, I, I love it. And it's it's unfortunate that absolutely everybody can't just go out and see a UFO tonight you know, because that's the most powerful experience for people and, and the best evidence possible is for mm -hmm. them to see it for themselves because when you experience something like that that is absolutely unexplainable in the sky, I mean, that 
that opens your mind. It really does, and you start considering the possibilities. Because it, it's easy for for a skeptic or you know somebody who's a, who's a hardcore scientist and astronomer who's very familiar with things in the sky and and knows that a lot of misidentifications happen and they can very easily happen. But when they see for themselves something that's behaving like nothing that you can conceive of, then you start to wonder. Mm-hmm. And I, I wish more people would would see these things. And I think if they would avail themselves of this, you know, ma- make the time to go out and, and bother looking for things in the sky, they might they might just see something because, as you and I know, Alejandro, there's a lot of stuff up there shooting around. Mm-hmm. What I also like about this story is when you wrote it, you know, and we all tweeted it, and you never know how someone's going to react. Like, is he going to be shy about it? Is he going to get mad that people are bringing attention to it? Is he going to remove his, his yeah, tweet that he made and pretend it didn't happen and get angry at us? Right, but then he responded what, to, to Maureen when she tweeted it, the story, and he seemed, like, cool with it. So that was kind of cool, too. Yeah, very cool. I love when people embrace it, and he, he's not backing down from it at all. He He knows what he saw, and... People have tried to throw out explanations. You know, somebody suggested that it could have been a Chinese lanterns, and he said, um, "Performing breakneck crazy turns and maneuvers? I don't think so." Yeah. So, pretty cool. Yeah, very cool. Speaking of little dots zipping around the sky, actually, uh, the story I'm going to talk about is one that kind of has me perplexed because uh, it's kind of an interesting video, and that's this one from um, the Netherlands of this group, uh, July twenty. 20- it looks like this group of 20-somethings kind of hanging out on their Jeep on this remote beach in the Netherlands, and they're watching this white dot zipping around the sky. It's funny because somebody replied, yay, fuzzy dot. Well, sure, fuzzy <laughs> dot isn't interesting all by itself, but when it's zipping around the sky, that makes it pretty interesting. So right. the question is, you know, is this a remote control plane? They are kind of casually watching this thing. You know, they're not really freaking out like you might if you saw something really weird. But then it's always hard to gauge, you know, how someone's going to react. And, you know, would you and I be freaking out? I don't know that we would be pretty – I don't know uh, what we'd be doing when we saw it. So I'm really perplexed by this one. The cool thing, though, too, is that this person said, you know, there was also another really cool sighting. Uh, in the area, and that was a video that is also online, and he that was in October of 2011, and this was done by a group that is doing these really pretty HD shots of the Netherlands from helicopter, and uh, they just get some pretty shots. In fact, this is really funny, because in that region, there are television stations, and they've become the most watched, that this is all it is, is pretty shots of the countryside uh, in HD, and people watch it in droves. But anyways, it's one of those shows, and you see this weird kind of, you think it's a bird kind of zip by, but they zoom in, and and I can't tell if it is a bird. So uh, anyway, this uh, Netherlands video I thought was kind of interesting, and uh, you can't hear any sound, so that's another reason I kind of think maybe it wasn't a remote control plane, but what do you think? Well, I'm glad you pointed out um, the onlookers, because that was... The thing I I noticed first, you know, when you have a UFO video and they swing around and show the people like around, that I don't know. Sometimes that uh, raises a red flag for me. But anyway, you can see these people kind of casually sitting on their car and watching, like yeah. they're out there with friends flying a RC airplane. So uh-huh. that was my initial thought. But again, the the object is a fuzzy dot. You can't make out any sort of shape, so we have no idea what it is. 
Yeah. So, and then the person posting it, of course, is claiming that it's a UFO video. And the other good thing about this is the account that it was posted from is this one called TQT, which they say they just want to post inspirational quotes. And their other video is uh, Desmond Tutu. So uh, they don't look like a UFO-oriented YouTube page. So that's kind of a good thing for for this, too. So, yeah, so it's just a very mysterious video that uh, people can go check out on our site. Yep, I dig it. All right, there's a few other really curious videos, I think, that we posted last week that people can go check out. But uh, thank you very much for talking with us, Jason. My absolute pleasure, friend. But uh, let's go ahead and uh, talk some science with uh, Mr. David Paris. I am excited, as usual, to have our guest on today, and that is David Paris. Hello, David. Hi. How are you doing? Good. It's great to talk to you again. Yes. Uh, well, we've got some exciting things to uh, discuss, some new uh, innovations and experiments that we've performed here over the last year. And uh, in kind of conclusion of our last conversation, you said, well, if you have some uh, results, you need to contact me. Yeah. And and I did. <laughs> yeah, I'm very happy that you did. And just to remind people, uh, if you could kind of go into your background and what you do. I know you're a very busy guy doing a lot of stuff right now. Well, primarily right now is I'm teaching at uh, four different colleges in the Omaha region. And I teach uh, astronomy, physics, geography, geology, and virology, a total of 10 different uh, courses. And at any given time during a year, I'm teaching about seven to nine classes. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, around 65 to 75 semester hours a year, including labs. So, right. Yeah. It's a busy it's a busy lifestyle as a uh, adjunct uh, professor there. Yep. And I also noticed you've done a lot of work uh, as with weather systems and weather engineering and uh, atmospheric science and stuff like that. Yeah, I've um, been involved in with the Army Atmospheric Science Lab, the Battelle Memorial Research Lab. I've developed a lot of uh, portable weather equipment, basically backpack-type varieties in the uh, early 90s. Prior to that, I worked for a defense contractor in weather systems uh, engineering mm-hmm. and uh, helped to transition the manual uh, map production of the Global Weather Central, Air Force Global Weather Central, now named uh, APA, Air Force Weather Agency, and transition them from the manual production of maps into the automated production with uh, computerized uh, analysis and uh, be able to move all the weather information onto a screen and then data fuse it together and produce forecasts. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll get into it later, but I mean, weather plays a part at least uh, in um, some of what you believe are natural occurrences of space warps. Well, actually, the, the multidisciplinary background that I have in uh, meteorology and also aviation and radar. I mean, you just go down the list of all the things that I've done throughout my life, and if it hadn't been for those experiences, I probably would have never figured this out, Mm -hmm. that that, uh, the um, space warp, uh, macro versus 
micro space warp actually um, exists in a um, natural environment. And that was the major big discovery. And with that said, having several cases that I've analyzed over the years of, uh, and I believe you're familiar with this particular pilot, and he's been on a number of programs, Bruce Gernon. Other cases of uh, Lieutenant Colonel Frank Hopkins in 1966, Arthur Godfrey in the, actually in the late 1950s, and Flying Officer O'Brien during World War II, all experienced a linear displacement. Uh, in other words, going from point A to B in just a matter of a second or so and being displaced uh, between 100 to 300 miles. And in one case, Lieutenant Colonel Frank Hopkins, uh, he had a C-97 cargo aircraft from the Air National Guard unit, and they were measuring their waypoints, you know, checking in each hour. And between the uh, one of the waypoints, they found out that there were 300 miles downrange where they shouldn't have been. And so he never uh, he goes to the base and you know says what happened, but they never write it up in the logs. And later on in life, he had written this out and uh, wrote a letter about it, and I was able to get a hold of, you know, a copy of this thing. And uh, in all these cases, though, these people are unrelated, and they were totally different times from World War II to 1970. Mm-hmm. And, but all of them experience the same type of thing of this linear displacement. So the, the real detective story here was how, does, how can this be initiated in nature, and what I discovered was that the uh, characteristics of thunderstorms are the uh, primary kicker here, or the uh, one that conveys the proper fuel structure that would then compress the fabric of space and in, in a non-sustainable environment. In other words, this is a one-time good deal. The airplane gets trapped into this uh, local warp bubble and then it's projected out and can cover massive amounts of miles in, um, in just a short bit of time. Mm-hmm. Now, I so, want to get more into this and the details behind that, um, but I do have just some off, well, some related type of questions real quick um, to ask you about um, to kind of set yeah. the stage for this also. But one question mm-hmm. that comes to mind is, there's been a lot of news in the last couple of days, or at least a lot of buzz, you know, in our field around uh, this Joe Rogan show that was on recently, where he kind of debunked a lot of the theories when it comes to HARP. And I was wondering what some of your thoughts are in um, that project actually being around um, weather manipulation. Well, at least my understanding of, of Project HARP. I mean, I actually use data that comes from Project HARP. Mm-hmm. It's a, uh, um, and this is that they keep track of the amounts of uh, in, intensities of plasmas that enter into the North Polar regions. And they map this, and you can get, uh, this is available onto the Internet. Uh, I, I do know that Project HARP is a Tesslerian-based uh, radio transmission center and so they have, um, they transmit uh, a lot of uh, RF uh, 
transmissions into the atmosphere to try to densify the atmosphere to, to bounce radio signals off of. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of these activities have been, in the past, the Army has experimented with um, meteorites uh, that enter into the atmosphere and the densified trails that come behind the ionizing meteorite, they actually can bounce radio signals out. Mm. And now in more recent times, commercial entities have begun to use this as a mechanism to create secure communications between two locations by using meteorite um, activity in the atmosphere. So Project CARB and there currently are other two other stations similar to this, one in Sweden and one in Russia. And whether this can do weather manipulation, based on just information that I have as far as the kinds of energies that we're looking at in the atmosphere, this facility doesn't have enough um, electrical energy to really do much of anything other than to experiment and to um, uh, bounce signals off the upper air and to uh, see if they can make modifications in a very small micro area. Right, and I so, think maybe some of the confusion is that um, it's very technical what they're doing and it's very um, difficult to kind of comprehend. Uh, and so that kind of confusion kind of, I think, lends to that conspiracy. Uh, well, the fact the fact that it's isolated, it's out in poker flats, you know, it's in the middle of the nowhere in Alaska, but they selected that area because of the um, lack of electrical interference from other other terrestrial sources. Mm. So they were looking for kind of more of a, a pure area to do some research. But like I said, my knowledge about the actual operations, what they do is uh, limited. I mean, I have seen the books. I've read um, uh, let's see, uh, the book about harp itself, where no angels or something like that. I mean, I can't remember the exact title of it. A harp is no angel. I believe that's the name of the book. And uh, so there, a lot of times what will happen is that remote facilities can uh, develop their own, um, you know, uh, concepts and ideas for people that really don't have a whole lot of knowledge about what's going on there. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, let's face it, look at the, you know, the mystery about Area 51, uh, go to Long Island, go to Plum Island, you know, where the FDA has a um, research center there, and they, and, you know, look at bacterias and infestations and things like this, and you got all kinds of horror stories that come from all these places, uh, these, uh, you know, uh, various places, <laughs> you know, what can I say? Right. Uh, is, is there truth to it? I would imagine that there's probably some pieces of uh, evidence that says, some of the activities that they do, but you know, some of the conjecture, I think, perhaps maybe gets out of hand. But then again, I'm not fully knowledgeable about everything that goes on there. I mean, I can only go on what I have personally used from their facilities, and and that information uh, actually helped me solve some of the problems that I've had to encounter on how do you initiate uh, warp drive? Uh-huh. How do you replicate this kind of stuff? So overall information that I was able to get free on the internet uh, eventually helped me. So. Right. Um, okay, a couple of other questions. Thanks. That's a, I think that's great insight. You, you're someone who has actually used their data. So, um, mm-hmm. Coincidentally, right before you had uh, contacted me, 
There was a new story that had gone out about another physicist talking about faster than light travel and space warps. And I wanted to ask you about some of his comments. Um, his name is Eric Davis, and he actually spoke at the recent MUFON symposium. And uh, he talked about kind of how science lends a blind eye to, to a lot of these topics and, and why that is. But one of the comments that he made is he feels that UFOs are definitely the craft of a supremely advanced technology. Um, do you agree with that statement? Um, well, the fact that we were able to prove that microspace warp does exist and on a macro basis it's just a question of more power, I don't know if I consider our solar station that part of that. I don't think it would be very many years before we actually see our own craft being able to take these kinds of journeys. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess from the outside, if you haven't worked with this uh, type of technology, it would be something that would, um, you know, you'd probably make estimates saying, you know, that a civilization that could do this would be highly advanced. Uh, yeah, I would kind of agree with that. But the, now, had this been maybe five years earlier, I don't think there would be any question in my mind of saying, yeah, you would have to be a pretty highly advanced uh, civilization to do this. But as this detective story begins to unfold and the science end of it, um, it, uh, it appears to be more within reach than the um, people who pontificate about all the exotic energy that has to be had and all the different uh, ramifications of space warp doesn't work quite like what they all have theorized. Mm-hmm. And um, and that's why it will be an uphill battle until we get to the next step here of actually taking a small craft off the ground and uh, letting it uh, move in all axial directions. Um, even then, they'll probably be the naysayers in that. So I kind of turn a deaf ear to some of that, uh, those comments that, will be made. I'm already anticipating that it's going to be the uphill battle. Mm-hmm. Except acceptance on what we've already done in the past year uh, will be uh, met with a lot of disdain. You know, um, I've already seen it. We've uh, we put an applica- or a uh, abstract into a symposium. I won't mention which one that was, but it came back and they said, "Sorry, we're not interested." And uh, and I would. Kind of scratching my head, saying, "Let's see, wait a minute. We have all the proof that this actually does occur. Okay, so I guess you just would rather have people talk about the future and theoretical um, mechanisms or theoretical uh, speak on how spaceport will or will not actually work. Um, it kind of disturbs me a little bit. Right. That's just the way things are." Now, and if I remember correctly, um, did you, yourself, were you uh, part of MUFON also? Yeah, I'm a star team member. I'm a section director for MUFON here in Nebraska. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I have to say, and on my new website, I, I have my observation that I saw when I was 16. Mm-hmm. of a, you know, uh, close up and personal within like a thousand feet. 500 feet off the ground, a vehicle that came across my path and some other witnesses. And um, and actually, that's the thing that's gotten me over 44 years of investigation. Uh, 
wanting to solve the problem of how does that damn thing fly? Right. <laughs> I mean, this is what it's really come down to. And, uh, you know, I was really active in sports and everything. And um, right after I had that, that sighting, it changed my entire life. And that's why the title of the story, 45 Seconds, that changed my life. Yeah, wow. And, and that's where I got into all the various pieces of science and radio and you know, everything you can imagine. Of, um, just kind of to summarize it, just to hone my skills so that I could apply this. But uh, eventually finding out, almost coming like full circle, how I believe that that particular craft worked and the only assumption I can make at this point with the data that I have is that probably is more than likely how it actually worked because uh, you know, space warp isn't this instantaneous, you know, um, you're going faster than light travel. It can actually be engaged like you would in your car with an accelerator pedal. So you can go as slow as you want. You can go as fast as you want. It's just um, once you have... Uh, neutralize or go over unity with this thing, it doesn't require that great amount of power to go at a faster rate. Mm-hmm. It actually goes up kind of uh, exponentially with our prediction graphs that we've made. Wow. So, yeah. so one of the things he also stated, uh, he was had some pretty harsh words towards other scientists who uh, really debunk or, or are super skeptical about this kind of um, line of, of investigation, and he even used the terms there, wrong, naive, stubborn, narrow-minded, afraid, and fearful, um, kind of saying they're a bit un- unscientific. Do you feel the same way, or maybe do you have a little more sympathy towards uh, some of your colleagues who are more skeptical? I, I look at it this way. They come from a set of disciplines that... They don't have the kind of backgrounds that I know that after reading some of the things that they have written and uh, what they have uh, listed as where their expertise lie, my expertise lie across the field in in science. So as a geographer, you know, astronomy, physics, I I encompass a lot of different scientific uh, disciplines whereas they have pretty much a focus. So the way they think is totally different than the way I think. I, mm-hmm. I use nature and I use observation. I use empirical data. I listen to people. Um, and I think these people have a tendency, and I mean these people, but they're theoreticians. They have a tendency to dismiss and be extremely dismissive of people that have had experiences, and particularly aviators. And I could go back... Um, in, uh, during World War II, where aviators claimed that they saw red and, and uh, uh, red and blue sprites uh, jets going up from the tops of thunderstorms into space, well, they dismissed them. And then it was more recently, once they started to see this stuff from space shuttle pictures, that then all of a sudden they were believed. Well, a little late after like 70 plus years, right? Mm-hmm. Of these uh, of these claims by highly qualified, trained observers, pilots, and they got to be looking out for where they're going. So if they see something, you may not understand the science behind it, but they've seen something. And these pilots that I've I've cited here that have you know stepped out among the crowd because I know there's other people that have experienced this, but they're just afraid to say anything. 
And these guys, over time, from World War II to present day, have had these same experiences. Now, like I like I mentioned, they're not connected in any way, shape, or form. They come from either different branches of the service. They come from uh, different times, and yet they still have the same experiences. So, in in evaluating their stories, I didn't become dismissive to these people. I looked and investigated and tried to narrow down the parameters as to what were the situations that they had this encounter with. And this is why I did an analysis of like um, over 32 different cases. Uh, I picked uh, randomly 23 and I analyzed them. I did weather forensics on all the aircraft. Now whether, and this is if they survived or they disappeared, but I kept coming up with the same types of weather phenomena of where these things uh, were initiated. And uh, that was the beginning clues to put these things together. And ultimately, it was the recognition that the internal thunderstorm structure itself that is actually creates these tripole fields um, were the basic reasons, my assessment was, these were the basic reasons why these pilots were able to essentially get involved in a non-sustainable, instantaneous local spaceport bubble. Now, I've done the history and discovery channel programs, <clears throat> and if you have actually seen these things, you will also, you will always um, note that after any time I speak, then the um, narrator will come on saying, well, scientists and the scientific community dismiss this as not being possible. So I guess that's kind of a way out of not mm -hmm. you know, putting your putting your head in the scientific sand and only going with <clears throat> what somebody else has said. So that's part of our that's part of our problem. I mean, I kind of empathize with a lot of scientists that come up with uh, ideas outside the box, and then everybody looks at them and saying, "Well, you know, we don't believe you." Um, and so it, it does get a little. Um, uh, Disappointing, I guess. Right. Uh, yeah, I'm not depressed about it or any of this type <laughs> of thing because, you know, like I said, I'm, uh, I've seen this in history, so I've kind of shrugged this off. I really don't care what these other guys have to say. I have always worked in a capacity that seen as believing, so I don't do vaporware. I don't do the um, postulating about, gee, what can happen? I build it. So when I tell you something works, it's because I built it. I can demonstrate. I can show it to you. And if you go down the line of a lot of these scientists that uh, talk about space warp and they get all their little soft money contracts to do further investigation, they haven't produced anything. Mm -hmm. and, and perhaps maybe between um, other government agencies that talk a good game, they haven't produced anything. And maybe it's, uh, there might be some, uh, uh, I guess, resistance of a person who's self-funded out of a garage lab <laughs> uh, that's come up with the idea. Uh, and didn't it was not necessary to have multi-billions of dollars or millions of dollars worth of test equipment around to build it. That's what's exciting about what you're doing. I mean, I could see how a Davis would be frustrated in that, um, 
you know, he's focusing on on space warp and faster than light, uh, and there are others, and uh, that it's been seen as a realm of theory, uh, but it's one that's taken uh, more and more serious, but then you have this group like the SETI group who just refuse to even consider that it's possible at all, which can be pretty frustrating. Um, It is. (laughs) Right. And then there's you which was really exciting because you're going into the lab in your basement or in your garage in this case, and yeah. you're actually doing some hands-on to demonstrate that uh, we could be closer to applying this technology than uh, many people think. Exactly. I've already got five different uh, models that I have created, and uh, as you build one, you learn more about it, and you learn more about the, the field structure. Um it, it just keeps moving on and on, and uh, I have limited power sources on my uh, supplies, and that is really right now my limitation. I'm constructing one of, a, of over a thousand watts of power to uh, put into this motor, but uh, right now we've been limited to about a hundred watts and below. But the interesting piece of this is that. Um, uh, 5, 10, 15, 25, and 100 watts of power we've been able to demonstrate the same effect, just not as great of a, of a distance. So the, um, metric, the compression metric within the motors themselves uh, is a, an accumulative um, piece. So we put them on vertical uh, scales. We've had them on mechanical scales. Uh, we have a modified Henry Cavendish experiment where we have a uh, two massive weights, you know, on a, uh, on a balance bar, and that uh, the engine is then put like about nine inches through a, in a where the um, uh, heavy masses are protected into a uh, container, and then the engine is put up near one of them, and it will actually uh, the uh, uh, compression of the fabric is space literally this is sensitive enough that actually pulls it towards the motor, and with that, we've had recent uh, measurements of uh, essentially approximately one centimeter per second movement of the mass. Mm-hmm. And this is your, so your recent micro-warp experiments? Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and these, these have been going on a year, actually, and uh, French television, TV5, the Alice, which is, I guess, uh, great for the goddess of the sea, uh, they had this uh, very popular program over in France, and they were doing a special with uh, on Bruce Gernon and the Bermuda Triangle, which is always a fascinating thing. And uh, so they found out about my experiments, and they came up here, and they actually filmed the first live turning on of the experiment last July. That was kind of exciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually, if it, I have to... Uh, I actually have to attribute some of the developments that we made in our um, experiments as a result of some of their camera crews knocking our equipment over. Really? And, uh, yeah. <laughs> they got a little too close, and they they knocked over my um, very costly interferometer and, and laser, and, <laughs> and they knocked everything out of alignment. So it took me like two hours to get the things back into alignment to start to, uh, uh, for them to continue their filming process. But as a result, once they left, which I was happy, 
mm-hmm. that they were out of my lab, not knocking stuff over. I redesigned things, and I made um, uh, massive improvements as a result. And this is when I went to, instead of dipole antennas, I went to tripole antenna design. And these things were massive. And you, you can see this on to the um, Paris Space Warp um, research site there. And um, what's interesting is that as this problem projects itself, we were able to compress a laser, a laser beam, and we were able to demonstrate that in between these two tripole antennas, you can create, a, in this case, a warped core field. And the laser going through, when the field was off, was normal. And we'd have, we would um, film the, um, photograph the uh, fringe patterns that were left through the interferometer on its projection screen. And then when the thing was on, the fringe pattern would actually go in towards the projection screen. So we would take images of that, and we analyzed them. We put them through fractal analysis, and we also put them through a program called Open Fringe, which is actually a program developed for telescope makers of um, parabolic mirrors. And what it does is it actually tells you imperfections of the mirror. Well, we used that program. Uh, it was quite revealing in that when it was off, you got nice, uh, round, uh, perfect objects there, no interference. And when you put our antennas on or when you activated the stuff and you put the, the laser through there, um, the beams got compressed, and that's exactly what you would have to show that the um, fabric of space had actually been compressed as a result of this interaction of the tripole fields and then the warping thereof of the laser beam, so the mm-hmm. compression of the laser beam. Now, we've also detected is, an, is a, um, a redshift in the compression of the, um, the warp motors themselves. So we have lots of data that shows the things that you would expect to see in this kind of an environment as we sat down and we collected uh, and designed these experiments, and all independent of each other, but they keep coming up with the same results, is that if this is not just conjecture, it's not uh, theoretical, but this is the real deal. Mm-hmm. So you have... Uh-huh. Go ahead. Yeah. So just to kind of explain to people, uh, you have, because if they look at the pictures, and if anybody, you know, is at their computer, they can go to parisspacewarpresearch.org, and Paris is spelled P-A-R-E-S, so parisspacewarpresearch.org, and you have kind of these PVC pipes with these antennas on each side, uh, and then a stand with a laser kind of shooting uh, through the middle of this. So um, the actual space warp uh, that you're creating then is in between um, these two um, PVC pipe antennas? Correct. And then and then the other problem was that, well, how do you actually, once we figured out that this thing worked in that capacity, then how do we actually make an application here that we could utilize it in terrestrial environment? In other words, put it on spacecraft, put it on aircraft, so that became a, a big design issue, is uh, how do I miniaturize this, essentially? So what I did was um, 
again, being a ham radio operator, I've I built a lot of antennas over my time. And I've always been fascinated with fractal antennas. And so I decided to take a, a jump at this and uh, design a special tripole fractal antenna array and put it on um, circuit cards. And that's what I did. I etched them into circuit cards. And my concept was if I, if I could take two flat arrays, I could basically focus them at different angles and I could produce the same results that I get between these two omnidirectional tripole antennas. And it would give me a lot more control. And it would be a lot lighter weight. It would be easier to um, apply to future you know, aircraft, perhaps, or spacecraft. And the other part of it was when you compress the field, what direction does this thing go? I mean, it was good to, you know, see that the laser beam was compressed, but how can I direct motion with this thing? In other words, how can I, in its displacement of the fabric of space, how can I turn left, right, up, and down, okay? And by utilizing these, um, these uh, motor designs with uh, variable pitch in the arrays, I can create different intensities of the field. I even have one version that has dual arrays. In other words, there's four flat panels, two on the outside and two on the inside. And by varying the, the angles on those, I can have, like, pre-compression to more compression. I've actually doubled the output of the motor. In other words, on, the, on the, our vertical spring scales that we have, uh, typical pull-down is one to two grams, depends again on to the amount of power that we put into the system at the time. But with having the four uh, arrays incorporated into one motor, we discovered that we could double the output with the same amount of energy. So that, that was quite revealing to us, and we were able to shape the field. And so the, the, the misconception that a lot of these people have about uh, local space force bubbles is that it's all encompassing. It's not. And that you have to, you know, ratchet up with huge amounts of energy to get this thing started. No, you don't. And you've got to have exotic energy. No, you don't. You can plug this in the wall. You can, <laughs> you can run it off a battery if you wanted to. So the results that we have is shown that does not require exotic energy, and that uh, you can go as slow as you want. And as far as the fastest you want, that remains to be seen for us because, like I said, I'm after the 1,000-watt unit, and I want to go to a 5,000-watt, a 10,000-watt, and then uh, gather more data as we go just to verify our um, projection charts of our exponential power as it goes up. Actually, it's not exponentially of, of power, but exponential of the amount of um, compression and space that you would experience, which then relates to the uh, equivalency of light speed or faster than light. All because right. You got to remember. You got to remember that you're compressing space like an accordion. In other words, if the accordion is stretched out, that's normal space. As you compress it, that would be pretty much what you would look like in the um, fabric of space. And that's usually accomplished by large amounts of mass. And you see the uh, space, uh, fabric of space being compressed around the sun, around the earth, 
uh, all this interplays together using mass. But uh, as far as energy goes, this is how we're artificially inducing it and being able to sustain it. And that's, and that's this is the big deal here. It's, uh, it's, it's one thing to have a, a non-sustainable, instantaneous ride like these pilots experience, but it's another to be able to control it. And, and again, what we've found is that you can have multiple motors that then can create an overall bubble around a craft or an aircraft or a spacecraft. You don't have to produce one giant bubble. It can be an uh, accommodation, an accumulation of um, motors that can create a bubble. And you can vary the the size of the fields. You can vary the intensity on one side to the other. And if you want to stop, guess what? You turn it off. Mm -hmm. So, and uh, I mean, yeah, you go ahead. Uh, just to kind of help explain, so you talked about how your experiment was able to demonstrate that you were able to um, contract some space uh, yes. using the laser. And the method uh, of the travel using this space warp would be compressing the space in front of a craft and then expanding the space behind the craft? Yeah, that that appears that that's what happens. Okay, yeah. and we then... We definitely have the measurements of, like... Um, uh, in our 100-watt experiment, we have made measurements of 0 0.08 millimeters of uh, compression. doesn't sound like a lot, but when you do this exercise this over a couple of minutes, you'd be surprised on the uh, amount of pull-down that you get. And, of course, we're using scales, vertical um, scales that will pull down in grams of uh, a pull. And uh, then when you release it, goes back and reinitialize, set up the scale again, and then you hammer it with the energy and it pulls it down. And it, uh, it's an accumulation over, and many times we'll run it for a minute, two minutes, because, um, you know, our equipment that we have can get hot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, we're making do with what we have. Uh, we do a lot of adaptive engineering and uh, we repeat these experiments. I mean, this is what we've been doing. I mean, we have eight different experiments right now that we that we run, and we're constantly going back and reconfirming what we initially did because we know we have a lot of naysayers out there. So mm -hmm. we keep compiling the right. data. We'll be producing a paper to try to get this thing published. If anybody wants to listen, uh, eventually what we want to do is uh, go to Kickstart and then... Uh, because I'm pretty much out of money at this point to do any further experiments. Uh, I'll take it up to this next 1,000-watt unit, but after that, I start getting up in the five and 10,000 watts of uh, energy for these uh, for these motors. Um, it's getting out of my price range mm -hmm. to be able to, to do this. But we've made a lot of, um, I guess as one, one of my friends would say, you've accomplished a lot for less than the cost of a, of a garden tractor. Right. Especially if it's just a kind of a proof, proof of, con of uh, concept, then that's a, that's a major goal to reach. Now, so you've learned to compress. Have you also, do you understand then how to do the expansion piece as well? Well, that's natural. Once this thing compresses and the, uh, the fields release up and around the, the motor, 
I've actually run one experiment I hadn't been able to photograph because I couldn't get the contrast really well. I could see with my eyes, but uh, we had some dry ice uh, that we were running in one of the experiments, and uh, the dry ice formed like a veil, and when the engine was active, you could actually see this stuff um, being pushed up and over the motor, which outlined the field, which I which was really exciting. Mm-hmm. But you also have to understand is that we're working against the, the, the time, uh, the gun, the time gun here. You know, what I mean, it's uh, we're just afraid that somebody else is going to figure out what we've done, and then because they have more money than we do, just try to replicate what we've already accomplished and uh, try to take the lead. And uh, I guess uh, that experiment was not as important as all the other ones that we've continued on with. Mm-hmm. We'll get back to it at some point, but, you know, we're at this stuff, uh, you know, two and three times a week. I got, obviously, a full teaching schedule, and um, Matt uh, Judah, who is also our uh, other researcher on this, uh, two of us are the main guys, and we may, uh, in the next couple of weeks, we'll be putting out some new um, photos of some of the experiments. We have up to, I believe, Experiment 5 on the website. Mm-hmm. We put up for Experiment 8. And uh, we'll also have a video with that one as well, uh, just to show people. And we want to we inform the public that this is not high in the sky. This isn't uh, science fiction stuff, but this is uh, a real reality for, civiliza- for civilization. Mm-hmm. So that's so that laser stream that you're you're compressing. Then um, the let's say the photons that are going through uh, are they then uh, slipping forward through this little space warp, this micro warp? Um, well, what they're what they're uh, demonstrating is when it's off, you would get a fringe pattern on the screen that's unaffected, and when they're on. It then shows the quote compression of the laser beam. In other words, it's it's actually we can actually measure uh, 4.3 nanometers of compression of the beam by utilizing these these fringe patterns. Now, mm-hmm. when it's turned off, obviously it releases. And uh, does the field release around behind the laser? Um, yes, it would. But what we're actually measuring is the forward output of what's happening on the laser itself. We're not measuring what happens behind it at this point. Okay. We're only we're only interested in forward movement in this particular case. Okay. That's, that's where that comes But from. you are creating some of this this forward movement then. Yeah. 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 Oh so. yeah. I mean with the with, uh, the laser beam was the first uh indicators that led us to making these new motors that would eventually, with enough power, be able to lift off the bench and uh, be able to be maneuvered around. Wow. We're getting close close to that. Wow. How much power do you think you would need for that? Well, this is the thing. With uh, 1,000 watts, it's only going to end up being just a few ounces. And Mm -hmm. so it's it's a weight to compression ratio. In other words, most people would say it's a uh, thrust-to-weight ratio. <laughs> For us, it's a compression-to-weight ratio. 
And the breaking point for us, our prediction charts tell us that at a point of about 7,000 watts of power, we'll be into able to lift thousands of pounds worth of um, equivalent mass. That's where we're at with that. But okay. At, so it really, like I said, it goes up exponentially as far as the um, power, but more so onto how much mass can you actually lift power versus uh, the fuel compression mm-hmm. and interpret this weight. You talked about, because Eric Davis had mentioned this too, that it would take exotic energy, and you talked about how that isn't necessary. Um, no. So I uh, guess what would be the relation? So for instance, um, like on your website, you have kind of a, a, a little craft uh, that you kind of use as an experiment, or you even have a picture of like a, a com- smaller commercial aircraft. Um, to move something like that, let's say even just to travel to the moon, how much energy would it take to maybe get you to the moon in an hour in a, in a small oh. craft that holds maybe four or five people? Uh, our our charts would indicate that we would need somewhere in about the 50,000 watt uh, of power, 50,000 watts of power. Okay. To, and, and you would get to the moon in a matter of uh, just a few minutes. Wow. And, like, so what, in relation, what other type of things use 50,000 watts? Radio station. <laughs> so a radio station. Uh, mm-hmm. A, a local, local radio station here, which uh, transmits uh, about 200-plus miles in all directions, you know? Uh-huh. Uh, that's a 50,000-watt that's a station. There are some 100,000 watts. So is this, a, is this an achievable power source? Oh, absolutely. Right. And you also have to remember, too, is in this uh, natural phenomena that thunderstorms can produce. I mean, these things can produce wattage up to 10 to the 15th watts of power. Mm-hmm. So that's 15 zeros after your leading number, which for us, uh, you know, when I made my calculation, like 7.3 times 10 to the 15th watts of power. And uh, now this is a brute force method, <laughs> non-sustainable it just so happens that these guys were in the right place at the right time when they popped into this thing, and they popped out. But it was non-sustainable. And uh, in Bruce's case, he went 100 miles from Bimini to Miami Beach. And uh, the calculation that I used there, even though that I believe it's a whole lot less than a second, but uh, in that calculation, uh, it figured out that he was 360,000 miles an hour in this little bubble. And um, now realizing that the wings of the aircraft would fracture at 225 on this uh, uh, Beechcraft that he was flying, the uh, Mm -hmm. A36 Beechcraft 1970, brand new off the showroom floor they were flying. And um, it had a a 30-foot wingspan on it. The thing was quite revealing in his case. He he documented all types of things. I even have his refueling tickets. He ended up with nine extra gallons of fuel on board his airplane. When you fly to Bimini, there's no refueling station. So you you make an entire round trip on what fuel capacity that you have in your tanks. Mm -hmm. And and his practice was as soon as he landed, he went over refuel and the tanks were topped. So when he filled the aircraft up, he was nine gallons less than what he should have put into the aircraft. Right. And that would have made up the difference of that 100 miles of flight. It's um, almost like the this. Fact, 
Mm-hmm. And, and, that's, and he took off at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It would have been a 75, 74-minute flight. He made it in 47 minutes. It's impossible for that airplane. If he went from takeoff to landing, he'd have to travel like 319 miles an hour. Those are, those are the initial uh, things that were intriguing to me. You know what I mean? I've spent years. I've flown with this guy twice on different uh, uh, series for television programs and all this. We've talked extensively about it. I've tried to pick his brain for everything that occurred, all of the feelings that he had, you know, what was the instruments doing and all this type of thing. And then that's when it hit me like a ton of bricks about the thunderstorms. The, my whole purpose working with him was not only to set up the weather forensic parameters that would give me the ability to forecast for the future on these occurrences that we could then take a UAV, an unmanned aerial vehicle, and fly it into a situation like this mm-hmm. and see if we could get this thing to replicate. And we actually made plans to check this out photographically this past December. Now, we canceled it because I had results in the laboratory. And one of the things that I didn't want to do was blow a lot of money in doing some of these investigations that would have been, you know what I mean, the weather would have to be just absolutely perfect, and then to photograph these warp tunnels or these um, what they call sucker holes in these thunderstorms that occur out off of the east coast of Miami. Because we're trying to, again, duplicate his scenario with the solar winds and the weather and all these things, which get them all together, I mean, you got a better chance of winning the lottery, right? <laughs> um, because statistically, it's, it's not, it, it occurs, but it doesn't occur every time you just feel like having it happen. Yeah. So that's, this is why I went to the lab environment, and then I used my other skills and disciplines to try to replicate this in the lab and test and see, look, if this actually happens to them, I always believed that it didn't require this enormous amount of exotic energy or power or 10 to the 24th as uh, Dr. Cleaver and Dr. Albasi talk about and then uh, Dr. Harold White talks about the equivalent power of a Voyager spacecraft, in other words, taking the mass of that, which is about 1,900 pounds, and converting that into, quote, an equivalent amount of energy, and therefore you could then, you know, initiate a warp environment. Well, I didn't believe any of that. You know, I believe that my the power in a cloud is far less than what a lot of these people were talking about other than Dr. White. Um, but initially, you know, when I was looking at this, I said, based on my own personal observation, I saw this craft flying less than 20 miles per hour. Mm-hmm. It's extremely stable. And when the thing banked, it never lost an inch when it came in front of our position. It righted up and then sped off. And it was like a no-brainer. It's like nothing. It was just like, you know, you just put your foot on the accelerator and away this thing goes. It never left my mind from 16 years old. And, and being a pilot back then, I was taking flying lessons. I knew that if you think an aircraft, you're going to drop altitude. Mm-hmm. And I don't care what you're flying, you know, you're going to drop altitude. This thing didn't drop an inch. It was the same place where it entered mm-hmm. it in a, at a 20-degree bank, flying straight in the level, you know, uh, flying on a horizontal line, and ride it up right again on that horizontal line and just took off. Mm-hmm. And some of the concerns that typically one would have. So, I mean, you're talking about like these storms will create these warp bubbles that are kind of 
spurting off occasionally when there's the right situation created. Uh, and if a plane kind of is in that area, then it's going to be shot along with that space uh, somewhere. And because it's a warp bubble, I guess, then um, the typical effects that um, gravity or momentum would have on, on quick acceleration wouldn't affect what's inside of this bubble. That's that's true. And you see, this is what was so important about Miguel Miguel Alcubierre's uh, investigation and, and where he made this proposal of a space warp bubble, local space warp bubble in 1994. Man, that guy was chastised. He was just dismissed. Uh, people just wrote him up and down. That's really embarrassing. Mm-hmm. Here is a guy who was thinking outside the box. He came up with a lot of the theoretical concepts, the ideas of and, and trying, you know, if you don't work with this stuff, how are you going to know? So, I mean, he theorized about what would happen in the compression of space, expansion around the craft, inside the craft, inside the warp bubble, wherever the craft was, the crew would not experience any kind of momentum, which also uh, gives into the explanation of why the UFOs can make 90-degree turns, you know? It won't affect the crew inside. If you're in a local space warp bubble, you know, the, the crew is unaffected by any of this. So you can go, you know, a thousand Gs. It's not going to hurt the crew, okay? And um, so this is a lot of the things that he theorized. Uh, he also theorized about tidal actions that would be experienced on the outside of the warp bubble, out into normal space. And he said they would be very violent. Well, experiences with these pilots that had this experience, like Bruce Kernan, there was no effects into the atmosphere. No one ever noticed anything. There weren't any wave actions going on in the ocean at the time. Everything was normal, and he pops out, and there he is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as the crew, they didn't experience any kind of uh, effects due to the acceleration, or, or it's not acceleration, but the, the linear displacement itself. They basically crossed that piece of paper, uh, take a normal piece of paper, A and B, fold it, and you're crossing the points A and B, even though that all that space is there, it's just all compressed. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, this is exactly what these guys experienced, the pilots. And uh, and then as far as the exotic energy parts of this goes, uh, you know, a normal thunderstorm can be the equivalent of a small 13-kiloton bomb. Yeah. That's like uh, 10 to the 7th watts of power, if you want to make comparisons. And these larger thunderstorms down into the uh, off the uh, coast of um, Miami, you know, east of Miami itself, these storms can get up to 75,000 feet. And the ones that Bruce flew into were like 65,000 feet. Two thunderstorms, as the ring of thunderstorms encircled his airplane, the last two thunderstorms were popping up. He saw the whole, he saw the blue sky on the other side, and instead of, he couldn't fly below it, couldn't fly above it, and at 10,000 feet, he took it, and he went into the hole, and he came out the other side, and it ended up in Miami, mm-hmm. on the Miami Beach side for Bimini. So uh, his experiences were, and the fact that he had the reviewing tickets, and he has the pilot logs, and he has the witness on the ground taking him off at three, his ground clocks are in synchronous with the ground clocks at the uh, at the tower. He lands at 3:47. He didn't experience time warp. What he experienced was linear displacement, or he actually was probably one of the first, not the first human, but one of the first documented humans uh, to actually experience a, a 
Space Force encounter. Not right. sustainable, but nonetheless a um, an encounter uh, that left me so intrigued that I spend like 24 hours yeah. thinking about thinking about this and how do how can I how can I make this you know into reality and uh, uh, in, you know to be able to artificially induce that and that's what we've come down is um, right at this point we have um, I believe shown beyond any shadow of a doubt that we have shown that you can do this with a, a lot less power than what everybody else professes about and that we have demonstrated that you can do this with a power that's available here onto the earth that does not have to be exotic by everybody else's account, and that uh, you can run this off of a generator, off a battery. You can, um, uh, the key thing is the arrays and how they're designed and how they're structured to compress the fabric of space. Mm-hmm. And I know that I will have many more improvements to make on this, but the fact that it does work and it does pull a scale down and it does, uh, you put one of these motors on top of the scale, it will take weight off. If you point the array down, it will put weight on the scale. And so we have those measurements. And um, Pretty exciting. It's really exciting. And we're, we're pretty much out of time, but I want to thank you for updating us. And, uh, I mean, uh, the potential that, uh, you know, the future will be traveling to distant places using the the Paris Space Warp engine. Um, <laughs> that's pretty cool. Well, let's hope so. Yeah. Let's hope so. Uh, but let's remember, most inventors, whenever, whatever they come up with, they're usually not the ones that end up building all these things. Uh, right. Uh, that's why I'm trying to keep this into the public arena to let everybody know that this does exist. I don't want to see this thing gobbled up by potential government entities. I'm really kind of nervous about uh, government finding out uh, that these experiments have been successful, but it's a double-edged sword now, isn't it? Now, mm-hmm. If I don't tell the public that this stuff does exist, then the possibility of uh, getting a knock on the door saying, sorry, all your stuff has been confiscated, I'm not going to put up with that kind of stuff. Well, And do you believe that perhaps this, these experiments have already been conducted in secret somewhere else? That I can't answer. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, and I, I wouldn't even speculate about it. Right. Um, I would think that if uh, they, if other experiments were done and they were successful, is that you would see stuff flying all over the place. Mm-hmm. And I haven't seen that yet. So, right. Uh, is this kind of like the uh, the bid for calculus, Newton versus the uh, the other guy mm-hmm. <laughs> who was two days late in submitting his paper? Right. Uh, I don't know. And I wouldn't even go there. All I can tell you is that the facts that I have is that it does work. It's there. And that uh, we're moving on to get more power, Scotty. And, <laughs> <laughs> and we're uh, we're trying to make this thing in a, um, uh, adaptable to terrestrial. I mean, this thing goes... Let me just take a couple of seconds here, okay, if you, if you allow me. Okay. This This isn't just space which would be intriguing just by itself. But this is adaptivity to aircraft, to hard points on airplanes. Um, the way I'm designing these things is they're going to be in pods. So say if you had a fighter plane, you could adapt these and put them on the hard points of the craft. It'd be minimal to convert existing craft to operate under these types of uh, engines. Uh, you could put them on cars. You could put them on wheelchairs. You could put them on... Mm-hmm. Things to lift 
things like refrigerators or uh, make things life easier for movers. Wow. Or you could live in more remote areas of the world and go to work in a couple of seconds. Um, I mean, that, that's the kind of thing that I don't know if a lot of people understand or realize what this really means. It means mm-hmm. a total, uh, it means a total change in how we think and how we do things. Right. I mean, a whole space station, for instance, instead of it having to, yeah, I mean, it could just itself move to the next location without any other, with just these devices and no other sort of well, engines to fly it. Or if I can, if I can take an airliner and cross the um, the Atlantic in less than a minute, how much fuel do you think you'd save? I mean, it has like yeah. almost close to seven hundred thousand gallons of fuel on board. Uh, some calculations that I made for the amount of minutes that we would take. You know, what about a couple hundred gallons? Gee, what a big savings that would be, huh? Right. Uh, what dependency would, that would you then have on oil mm-hmm. and and the uh, aviation fuels and all this type of stuff? You wouldn't. And this would mean minimal amounts of expenditure for to produce the electricity necessary to run these vehicles. But the uh, the, the bottom line of it is the, the cost savings, the time savings, I mean, it's a revolution in transportation. So it's, uh, it's it's not just an article in Popular Mechanics magazine here like they used to do in the 20s and 30s of how we're going to be flying around in flying suits and all this stuff. We're coming so close to reality of being able to see this thing off the ground. It's, uh, it's, it's not only exciting, but it's actually kind of scary to see something in my own lifetime that uh, or I would sit on the floor watching Star Trek and, you know, mind off in the space someplace. It's go full circle as the uh, as they portray Zephyr Cochran as the designer of Warcraft. Yeah. But, but actually in the on the basement bottom floor here of micro warp uh, experiments to see this maybe and I always give an air of caution because I don't know exactly where all this would go, but what I'm saying all our projections are is that we will definitely see in the macro environment of spaceport a a massive um, uh, ability to cross great distances in a very very short time. And it's, it's not pretty related exciting. to velocity. Yeah. Yes. And that you know, and not too incredibly surprising in that I mean a lot of the things that we have now I certainly wouldn't imagine we would have had when I was a kid. Um, Exactly. You know, my cell phone here, this mini computer that's in my hand, I didn't even really, when I was a little guy, understand computers or who did, really. And now I've got this tiny, super powerful one right here in the exactly. palm of my hand. Or the fact that you can sit on your and use your phone to see pictures from Mars. Right. I mean, we, as kids, we dreamt of that kind of stuff. We talked about it. You know, wouldn't that be neat to sit in your living room and see pictures on the surface of Mars? Yeah. And, of course, there would always be someone there saying, oh, that's impossible. Oh, it's never going to happen. Right. And and then actually see this and be able to go into class and say, okay, let's look at the geography and the, uh, the, the and actual geology of Mars, the surface of Mars, Let's get some live imagery and, and and take this and analyze it and show how there's similarities between here and the Earth. Who would ever thought you'd be able to go in a classroom and do stuff like that? Right. And I'm still amazed. And I, and a lot of my students, they sit there like, well, Duh. just to be expected. And I go, no, you didn't come up the way I did. 
Well, and that's what's funny with the kids. It's almost like if there isn't a major discovery every so often, they'd be. That's what would be strange to them. Exactly. So that's that's why after 44 years of working on this on and off, but it more intensively within the last seven years, um, it's it's kind of uh, for me. It's still the journey. I haven't gotten to the destination yet, but mm-hmm. um, I'm. Uh, I am very, very excited about the uh, the future and what this will actually bring to our civilization and uh, allowing us to become a space-faring world. Right. That is going to be super exciting to see that working in space, the endless economy from uh, taking, getting resources from the asteroid belt, going to the moon and getting digging up and processing helium-3 for fusion reactors. Yeah. All these possibilities. I mean, this is stuff of, uh, you know, the 1950s, you know, Willie Lay and, you know, all the books that he used to write. I mean, this is like, wow, this is like for real stuff, man. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty awesome. Well, thank you so much for getting a hold of me and giving us this update. Um this is really exciting stuff, and of course, we we wish you the best of luck. And uh, certainly, keep us informed, and uh, we'll keep up on the website. And again, you know, people can go to parisspacewarpresearch.org to find out uh, a lot more about all of this. Exactly. What we just talked about is just the tip of the iceberg. Right. And uh, we'll keep updating the uh, the website as uh, as we uh, have time. <laughs> You know, most of our time is spent in the lab there. Right. Uh, if we're not working, we're in the lab. So. And there's lots <laughs> of pictures of your... that's where I need to go right now. Yeah. <laughs> there's lots of pictures of your lab on the website, too. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And we'll always try to keep that up like that and uh, keep everybody informed of what's going on. All right. But Great. I... Thank you so well, much. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me on. And we'll uh, we'll, we'll talk to you as soon as we get some more information. All right. Thank you to David Paris. Remember, his website is parisspacewarpresearch.org. The Paris is spelled P-A-R-E-S. You can really just Google his name and find it also. Um, not a lot of David Paris's with a spelling like that. So, uh, yeah, you'll be able to see he's got tons of stuff on his site. He's got pictures of his work, of his lab, and everything, so you can go check that out there. Also, I do want to mention, you know, we did talk about this anti-gravity documentary based off of uh, McCandlish's work. So this gentleman who kind of drew out this uh, alleged ARV, alien reproduction vehicle, and alleged, you know, um, back-engineered spaceship, essentially, that uh, has been around for decades that can fly all over the place using uh, advanced technology itself. So he finally has his Kickstarter up for this documentary, and he needs your help funding it to finish. He's not, he doesn't need a whole lot of money, so anything that you could probably help him out with is going to be helpful. You'll be able to find that at openminds.tv on the front page. Don't forget to watch Spacing Out on our YouTube so you can get the rest of the UFO news. And of course, you can read all of this and find all of this at openminds.tv. So go check it out. I also want to say thank you, as usual, to the people who created the music for the show. Caleb Hanks for the opening music and two Earth Minutes for the close. You guys rock and let's listen to some of that music now. Adios, muchachos. Mm-hmm.